0: This is episode number 403 with Dr. Will Tuttle. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl and Open Wide. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? Guess what, my friends? My third physical book, Comparisonitis, How to Stop Comparing Yourself to Others and Be Genuinely Happy, is out right now. I am so excited and I cannot wait for you to read it. Honestly, I could not be more proud of Comparisonitis. Number one, New York Times bestselling author and social media sensation Jay Shetty said, Never before has a book been more needed. Future generations will thank Melissa for shining a spotlight on Comparisonitis. And multiple New York Times bestselling author Gabby Bernstein said, Since Melissa refers to people who have recovered from comparisonitis as unicorns, I suppose that makes this book a sort of unicorn training manual. I'm so grateful that such a manual has arrived. It's been infinitely helpful to me. My hope is that the same holds true for you. If you want to finally free yourself from comparison, fall madly in love with yourself and experience genuine deep happiness like never before, this book is for you. If you want to be a better friend, partner, parent, family member, colleague, or human. If you want to experience genuine happiness, have more energy to go after the things that truly matter to you. If you want to free yourself from expectations, unleash your creativity. Feel more liberated than you've ever felt before in your life. Be free to live your life for you and no one else. Feel peace deep from within. Truly appreciate your body and your life experience a radical shift towards authenticity and unleash the courage to go after your dreams, then head to comparisonitis.com and get your copy and all my awesome extra goodies that I've created for you for free. Not only do you get the book, you will get the official Comparisonitis workbook, a gorgeous Comparisonitis wallpaper for your phone, my ebook, How to Create a Soul-Expanding Comparisonitis Book Club, not one, but two of my brand new 8D Zen Tone advanced brainwave technology meditations, which will give you one hour of meditation in just 11 minutes. Plus two never been heard or released before interviews with global spiritual thought leaders. Just head to Comparisonitis.com and please share the book on social media and tell me your top takeaways. I cannot wait for you to read this book. Today's podcast is brought to you by Pure Harvest, who have just launched their range of Australian-made non-milks into Woolworths supermarkets across Australia. Non-milks are organic, vegan, and dairy-free milk alternatives. For me as a child, I had really bad eczema, and my mum saw the link between dairy and when my eczema would flare up, so she took me off all dairy products. So I've been drinking plant-based milks like these since I was little and I love them. They are so delicious. Pure Harvest non milks are a range of nutty oat milks made from a blend of organic whole oats and roasted nuts. They are super creamy, smooth and so delicious. And there are three flavors, nut bliss, Lush Almond, and Macadamia Dream, and they are available now at Woolworths Stores Australia-wide. So go and check them out. Dr. Will Tuttle, visionary author of the acclaimed bestseller, The World Peace Diet, published in 16 languages, is the recipient of the Courage of Consciousness Award and the Empty Cages Prize. He's also the author of Your Inner Islands, on developing intuition, as well as editor of Circles of Compassion, on the interconnection of social justice issues, and the editor of Buddhism and Veganism. A vegan since 1980, he is also a frequent radio, television, and online presenter. He has also created several wellness training programs. He was featured in Cowspiracy and other documentary films. He is also the co-founder of the Worldwide Prayer Circle for Animals. A former Zen monk with a PhD from UC Berkeley, Dr. Will is a noted composer and pianist. Since 1985, he has delivered an unparalleled 40 1000 plus live audience presentations encouraging compassion and vegan living in over 50 countries worldwide and in all 50 US states. That's pretty impressive, don't you think? And in today's conversation we chat about his inspiration behind his best-selling book The World Peace Diet and we also talk about his plant-based lifestyle journey. We also talk about what the World Peace Diet looks like. How agriculture and our current food choices negatively impact our planet, culture, physical and spiritual health. We also dive deep into the unspoken connection between dairy and appendicitis. We also talk about the four main invisible attitudes that we consume in every meal, which are destroying our balance with nature we dive deep into why peace starts on our plate and why we should remove violence from our plates first to build a more loving future. Plus, so much more. And for everything that Dr. Will and I chat about in this conversation, you can check out in the show notes and that's over at melissarambrosini.com forward slash 403. And without further ado, let's get this conversation started with the incredible Dr. Will Tuttle. Welcome to the show, Will. I am so excited to have you here. But before we dive in, can you tell us what you had for breakfast this morning?
1: For breakfast this morning? Well, sure. This morning was berries, lots of berries, some blueberries and some raspberries, a little bit of quinoa cereal to go with the berries, and some blackberries, some pineapple. It's a very healthy breakfast. We're actually, Madeline and I are traveling right now. And we're at Hippocrates Health Institute in South Florida, which is a place where people come from all over the United States and really in the world to heal. So to heal from cancer, diabetes, obesity, osteoporosis, liver disease, kidney disease, autoimmune diseases, various kinds. And they found that having a very healthy, organic, plant-based, mostly raw diet helps everybody to be healthier. Plus, uh, there's lots of other modalities that are used. So we're eating pretty much raw vegan here. We're we're vegans anyway, but uh, here at Hippocrates for the most part. So that's that's what we had. Yeah.
0: Well, that sounds delicious. And that place sounds amazing. So are you there for a period of time giving some talks?
1: That's it. Yeah. We're here for about a month giving lectures on my book, The World Peace Diet, also on meditation and healing. And I'm also a composer and a pianist. So we're doing some concerts. My wife plays the flute, silver flute. And so we're doing uh, concerts and lectures, mainly lectures, but also some music as well.
0: Oh, wow. That sounds amazing. I would love to just be there listening to you talk and share your wisdom, listening to your beautiful music and eating that delicious food. It sounds like a retreat.
1: It's a retreat, yeah, and it's really neat to see people come here. Like this lady we were just with, and she had cancer when she came, and but it's just shrinking. You know, like every day it's shrinking and shrinking, and (laughs) she's getting happier and happier. So uh, that's the kind of thing we we do see here, which is great. Beautiful.
0: Now, on your website, at the very top, your tagline—I guess you could call it that—it says "Eating for Spiritual Health and Social Harmony," which I love, by the way. I want to circle back to that, but. For those who are very new to your work, The World Peace Diet is one of your first books, and it's so amazing. I just loved it. You make explicit the hidden connections between our culture, our food, and the source of our broad range of problems. And the way to positive transformation in our individual and collective lives. So what actually motivated you to write this book, The World Peace Diet, which is such an amazing title?
1: Thank you. You know, the thing I think that motivated me more than anything was just realizing that no one had yet ever written a book in the English language that I was aware of. I still haven't seen one that, that actually gives the big, complete picture of the consequences and ramifications of our food choices, of our meals, especially when we look at it from the point of view of animal-based foods, animal agriculture, and the many benefits of, of moving, transitioning over to a plant-based way of eating and living. First, I thought somebody else will write that book. I can't wait to read it myself. <laughs> and that, that went on for a few years. And then finally, Madeline said to me, you know, well, I think if you want to read that book, probably write it and then you can read it. So I didn't really want to hear that because I knew it would be a lot of work. And it was, you know, many, probably thousands of hours of research and writing. But after five years, I got a book contract with Lantern Books in New York and and it took me five years to write The World Peace Diet. And it really uh, has been very gratifying to see how well it's been received. It's been translated now into, I think, about 17 languages. And it was a number one Amazon bestseller back in 2010. So it's really reached a lot of people and created, in some ways, its own movement, you know, the movement of sort of connecting the spirituality and social justice issues with animal treatment and health and environmental issues and see how everything is woven together. That basic idea is why I wrote it.
0: Awesome. So how did you get into this? Did you grow up in a family with parents who were very conscious about the environment and the animals and health conscious? Like, how did this unfold for you?
1: I was raised in a family that was not particularly conscious, I would say, about food and the environment, although I do have to say I'm very grateful. My parents were both nature lovers, and we spent a lot of time hiking and skiing and swimming and whatever, outside in nature all the time. This was in Massachusetts, outside of Boston, Massachusetts, or in the north. But we ate the usual meals of lots of meat, dairy, and egg. And of course, it was Concord, Massachusetts, which some people may, that may ring a bell. That's a place where there were a lot of, back in the 1800s, people like Emerson and Thoreau and Alcott, other people were bringing Asian ideas of vegetarianism, meditation, and so forth into Western culture, into the United States back then. And they actually started a little, basically, of like a vegan community way back in the 1800s, where the people didn't eat meat or dairy or eggs or even wear cotton back then, because cotton came from slaves on plantations. So they wouldn't wear cotton. They wouldn't wear wool. So they were. They wouldn't wear leather. So they were. They were wearing shoes made out of linen <laughs> back in the snowdrifts. So there was, I think, some maybe lost thread that I maybe tuned in on in some way, but. Mainly I just I think it was the Vietnam War, just questioning war. And then I started reading when I was in college books on yoga and meditation and started to realize there's more to life than just making money and getting ahead and passing on my genes to my children or whatever. That there's actually a deeper spiritual potential that we all have. And that's I think what eventually led me to travel on a pilgrimage with my brother, where we met a whole community. It was actually the largest hippie commune in the world. This was back in 1975 in Tennessee, which is kind of central United States. And they were off in California and they were all vegetarians. They were actually vegans, but no one heard of the word vegan back in 1975. So they say we're vegetarians, but they were really a, the inspiration, I think, for me to stop eating meat and to go deeper with this whole thing.
0: Wow. Okay. So what is the World Peace Diet? What does that look like?
1: Actually, the world peace diet refers to a way of eating primarily, but a way of living because actually the word diet, you take the roots back to uh, the ancient Greek, it actually means a way of life. So it's food and it's just how we live. And so it's a way of living based on, I would say on the ancient Sanskrit word ahimsa, which means nonviolence or non-harmfulness, the idea of just doing the best we can to live a life of loving kindness and consideration and caring for animals for ecosystems for other human beings for future generations for our own for ourselves for our our body too and really what the world peace diet celebrates is the realization that the more we're loving and kind to animals and wildlife and hungry people and so forth the more it comes back to us and uh, we feel healthier we feel more at peace and we can co-create together a world where peace and justice and freedom and harmony are actually possible the, the big point is that there's nothing stopping us we live on, on an earth you know a planet that is enormously beautiful and abundant and can easily feed all of us we're growing enough food every year actually according to experts who study this to feed at least 12 billion people probably 15 or 20 billion <laughs> so we can easily feed everyone that we hear the problem is that we're wasting so much land and grain and food by feeding it to animals And food shortages are the main cause of war. So the World Peace Diet is basically eating lower on the food chain, so there's enough for everyone to eat, so we can have peace in the world, or the possibility of peace in the world. I think it takes more than just changing our food, but I think changing our food would make an enormous difference. I mean, that would change, in a way, it would change everything in such a radical, we can't even imagine, I don't think right now, a world where everyone, where there's no more animal agriculture, where everyone's eating a plant-based diet. It's a beautiful image to hold. I think the image of a world at peace, the health, the harmony that we could have with animals again and with each other. It's really beautiful to contemplate that.
0: How do exactly our food choices affect our culture, our psychology, our ecology, our spiritual health? How does it affect those things?
1: Okay. So now you're getting into the deep water there. So I'll say there's a few different levels where this happens. You know, the The outer level, which is three domains, which is basically the environment, our culture, and our physical bodies. The main problem with animal agriculture is that it's very inefficient, right? We have to grow huge amounts of corn and soy and alpha and other feed grains. Usually, it's just commercial, so it's genetically engineered very often. and Lots of pesticide, herbicide, fungicide, all that was polluting water and air and eroding soil causing aquifers to go dry. We have to pump up so much water to irrigate all this land, grow all this food to feed the animals. And then they convert most of it to saturated fat, cholesterol, acidifying and inflammatory animal protein really isn't healthy. And huge amounts of sewage, nitrous oxide, methane, all these toxins that end up in the water and the air, stabilizing the climate and causing much more air pollution. And we're cutting down rainforests now at probably three to four acres per second to grow genetically engineered corn and soy to feed to these imprisoned cows and pigs and chickens for dairy products, for eggs, for meat. Factory farm fish now, two thirds of the fish we're eating are factory farms. So they're eating huge amounts of grain or fish that are caught in the oceans are fed to these fish. And that's very inefficient. It's it's so inefficient. So the result of all that is we have the complete devastation of rainforests, of species. We have the largest mass extinction of species now in 65 million years. So we're losing genetic diversity, water and air and soil erosion and pollution and depletion, of course, climate destabilization, and then the the overfishing of the oceans. So that uh, oceanographers are saying that we only have another probably 15 or 20 years left if we keep going the way we're going and the oceans will be completely dead because it takes so much fish because we're catching fish and feeding them to animals like cows and pigs and chickens to boost production. So they give more milk and more eggs and get fat. So that whole system, it's almost a certain kind of insanity to it. It's almost like we're just deliberately acting in a rapacious and unsustainable way toward the earth in order to eat these foods, which actually make us sick. And so that causes food shortages, as I explained earlier. We have hungry people. We have people, we have injustice, right? We have people taking so much land and grain and using so much water. And then other people don't have enough land and grain and water and they're starving and going thirsty and they see their kids. So those food shortages are really recognized now to be the number one driving cause of conflict in the world. Plus underlying everything, we have whole armies of workers who have the worst jobs, who have to impregnate animals on rape racks and mutilate them and stab them. And, so these workers have the highest rates of injuries, plus among the highest rates of suicide and drug addiction, alcoholism, abuse of spousal and child abuse. So it's this whole web of trauma to the animals, to wildlife, to workers, to hungry people. And then it doesn't stop there. Then the, th- the third domain or dimension is our physical body, because these foods themselves are really hard for our bodies to handle. They concentrate a lot of toxins, heavy metals, PCBs, dioxin, nuclear radiation, of course, from the fish. Uh, the pesticide, herbicide, fungicide residues, chemical fertilizer residues, all that stuff, plus the naturally occurring toxins in these foods. Like, for example, in dairy products, there's casein, which is the basic protein in milk, which we don't have the enzyme to digest. Like little calves have an enzyme called renin, which digests that enzyme. We don't have that. So it's well understood that breast cancer, prostate cancer, colon cancer, which are just increasing every year, are driven by dairy consumption. Animal product consumption primarily dairy and eggs there's so all these other problems they they concentrate hormones they concentrate igf you know, one growth hormones and estrogen and other things that are just damaging to us they're carcinogenic so eating these foods we're eating uh, toxins and we're eating terror and fear and pain and despair and anxiety and <laughs> panic and you know all all that kind of stuff so so that is where we transition into the inner domain so eating animal foods it's actually causing, I think, a lot of the inner discomfort that people experience, the sense of alienation, of isolation, of frustration, of anxiety, because we're eating anxiety. I mean, these poor animals, they're confined their entire lives. I mean, they're born into a life of no purpose other than just to be killed for a meaningless purpose, right? I mean, I've been a vegan. I haven't eaten any meat, dairy products, or eggs in 40 years. So now, here I am. I'm, hel- I'm as healthy, I would say probably I'm way healthier than people my age.
0: <laughs> How old are you?
1: Uh, I'm 67.
0: 67. Well, you look amazing. You glow. Your skin is glowing. And your eyes are so bright. And, you know, you've got a full head of hair. Like, you look amazing.
1: Well, that's the beautiful thing. You know, that's why it's like good news. It's all good news. It's like we can thrive. We can have a healthy heart, healthy relationships, uh, have a life of meaning and purpose, have plenty of energy and vitality in the morning, a sense of gratitude as we go through the day. And we can contribute to a, a much better world. I think there's no greater gift we can give to the world than to just make an effort to understand the consequences of our treatment of animals, actually. Because animals, they can't sue us you know, they can't retaliate in some way, get a gun and shoot back or whatever. They just suffer at our hands. You know, whatever we do, they just take it. So I think that's our real moral test. And it's not our fault. I'm, I'm not into blaming or criticizing anyone. It's just we're born into a culture. And I explain this in the World Peace Diet where we've been doing this for a long time, right? About 10,000 years, we started animal agriculture. We started owning animals as property for food. And that's sort of changed everything. And so we're born into that. And our parents and our teachers, like in my case, everybody in my life, my friends, my neighbors, the minister at the church, my doctor. my teachers, everybody, all the relatives were all eating animal foods. I just, I couldn't not do it. I mean, I had to, I just did, you know, it wasn't like I got up in the morning and thought, well, now I want to cause a cow to suffer and I'm going to steal her milk and I'm going to steal some eggs. I'm going to stab a chicken. you know, I never thought that I just ate what was given to me. And when I got older, I went to the store and bought what I needed to buy to have a healthy diet. Like my mother taught me plenty of protein, plenty of calcium. So the whole thing is we've just been miseducated and we've been somewhat abused and wounded ourselves because we've been told we need to eat these foods. And so these foods, I had an appendicitis, you know, when I was only, I don't know, eight years old, my appendix got all inflamed. We, now we know that's from dairy consumption. We're not designed to eat dairy, but all, so many things, tonsillitis, appendicitis, all these things kids have, you know, we don't, we don't need to do that.
0: <laughs> yeah. Do you know what is really interesting? I wanted to share my story. I had a ruptured appendicitis when I was 6 years old so I grew up eating and drinking so much dairy and then when I was 6 my appendix burst and I almost died I was very I was rushed to hospital I had 7 cups of pus in my in my tummy like I was very very sick and after that, my mum pulled me off dairy, and not because she knew it caused the appendicitis, but that's when all of my asthma and my eczema started to flare up. So I had severe eczema all over my face, arms, legs, my chest, and then asthma. And I was on a Ventolin for I think up until I was about eighteen years old. I, I can't even remember, but you know, my mum didn't know what she she now knows, but she did pull me off dairy after that. Thank goodness. So I'm grateful for that. But yeah, I didn't know that there was a connection there with the dairy and the appendicitis until then. And also my husband, he many, many years ago, he had appendicitis as well. This was probably about nine years ago. And this was when he was drinking a lot of raw dairy. He was drinking about two liters of raw dairy. He was following this diet that was all about raw dairy and raw milk. And he literally would drink a whole big two liter thing. And then a few weeks into that, he had appendicitis and he made the connection. He was like, oh my gosh, the only thing I've done differently is this raw dairy. He was on like some bodybuilding thing. Then he made the connection and he thought, oh my gosh, that's the only thing I've changed in my diet. And appendicitis. So that is so interesting. Very, very fascinating.
1: You're right, because we're not calves. You know, We're not a little bovine, and we don't have the digestive system of a cow. And it's a huge burden to eat dairy products. Our body has to go through all kinds of contortions to try to deal with casein. I mean, casein, that, that's, that's a foreign protein. So many people nowadays have autoimmune disorders of various kinds, and dairy is behind most of that because casein is this gigantic molecule that is very hard to break down. And, and very often it, it slips into our bloodstream and it starts, our immune system gets confused. It starts attacking itself. Oh, so many terrible things happen because of dairy. It's really, <laughs> we're not cows. We shouldn't be eating memory secretions from another animal.
0: I know a lot of people who have simply just removed dairy from their life. And seen dramatic health changes for the better. And just by making that one shift. So I have not had dairy in so many years. Since I I did I stopped it when I was six years old. And then I would occasionally have it if I was offered it and didn't know that it was in something or something like that, but very strictly not had it for 15, 20 years and never felt better. And my eczema completely cleared up. My asthma went away. So I know a lot of people who have seen such dramatic health benefits from cutting out that one thing from their diet. But I wanted to just go back because you touched on this a little bit. You talk about in your book, especially the invisible attitudes that we ingest at every meal. So what are some of these attitudes that we're ingesting every time we put something into our mouth? And what is that doing to us?
1: Thank you. That's a really important question. Right where I was going a little bit earlier, when I started talking about the inner consequences of, of eating animal foods, it's these attitudes that we ingest. That's exactly right. So when I'm sitting at the table, like I'm a little kid or an adult, whatever, and I'm eating meat, dairy products, and eggs. So I'm eating foods that are not in my best interest from the point of view of health, society, the environment, but also I'm eating a whole set of attitudes. And those are invisible for the most part. But my PhD from UC Berkeley is in education. And so in studying education, one of the things I focused on was how we're not just learning the content that we're being taught in the history class or the math class, whatever it is. We're also learning at a deep, and that stuff is tested on examination, but the stuff we learn at a deeper level is never tested. We're learning. How to operate within authoritarian power structures, <laughs> so we're learning you know we're learning how to compete for a limited number of good grades you know and and these kinds of things. so this is the deep learning, so if we're sitting at the table and eating animal-based foods, and we're doing this this is a ritual. I mean, anthropologists understand that rituals are the most powerful thing in every society, and that every society transmits the cultural values from generation to generation through the rituals. Of that culture. And the main ritual in every society are the meals. When we're sitting and eating food, we're eating the underlying attitudes of our society towards animals and nature and God and the universe and each other and everything. So that's why it's a great adventure, great adventure of self-discovery and self-understanding and to understand why we have the problems in the world that we're having to look at the food ritual. What is actually, what are we learning? So I would say there's maybe four main invisible attitudes. I, I list more of them in the book, but I'll just give four main ones. One very important one is with every meal we're ingesting and, and learning the attitude of, I use the word reductionism. In other words, we learn to reduce a being to a thing. This is not a cow. I'm not eating a cow. I'm not eating a pig. I'm not eating, I'm eating a burger. I'm eating bacon. You know, we, just, we learn to just see something without making the bigger connection. We see just the small part. And so we reduce other living beings to just things, and then when we do that, pretty soon we are reducing forests to board feet of lumber. You know, how much money can we make off? The, you know We reduce each other, the instruments that we can use to get what we want. I see you, how can I sell you something? How can I manipulate you to get what I want? So this reductionism is very dangerous and damaging in many ways. It sort of blocks our ability to see a being. We just see a thing, an object. You know These animals are bought and sold by the pound which is almost inconceivable to think of a being is worth how much they weigh. That's how much they're worth is how much they weigh. It's like so reductionistic in the extreme. So it leads directly to materialism, philosophical materialism that pervades our society, which I think is the opposite of spirituality. It's actually on being demonic in the sense that we just simply disregard a deeper purpose or a meaning in our life beyond consuming and just self-interest. Another one, a second main one is related to that, that's commodification. So basically, it's learning that every being can be a commodity. We learn how to turn beings into commodities that we buy and sell. The third one is the basic message of might makes right. You know, that it's sort of privilege and elitism. The basic idea, this is where where we learn this, because the reason we're eating animals is because we're more powerful than they are. So the subtext of every meal is those who are more powerful and stronger And dominate and exploit those who are less powerful you know and we eat it with every single meal that basic thing so here we are trying to make a society with more justice more equality more caring and so forth and yet every meal is telling is the opposite of that it's saying might makes right the strong dominate the weak and that's okay that's how we live and so we've got to realize that if we want to eat animal foods we're going to have a society of injustice, of inequality, of commodification, of turning beings into things, of dehumanization, of reductionism. You can't have animal foods and not have those ideas living inside people. And those ideas just militate against the hope of any kind of world of harmony, of peace, of respect, of kindness, caring, mercy, gentleness, tenderness, holistic, integral awareness. It just fractures everything. It just fragments and destroys the kinship that we feel with the earth. We're not part of nature anymore. We're exploiting nature. We're dominating. We're oppressing. We're agents of terror and fear and despair. You know, if, I was, if we were born as cows or pigs, I would not have to explain that. We would know that. We would know, God, here comes a human. Help, you know. We're, we, they're terrified of us because we torture them, you know, by the billions every day. And we don't care. We just don't even, we just act like it's no big deal. But to these animals, it's a big deal. Their interests are as important to them as my interests are to me. We have to really recognize that. So if we were being dominated by a species much more powerful than us because we taste good or whatever reason, we would hope that they would begin to see that we have interests. We don't don't want to have our babies stolen and our lives stolen and our bodies mutilated and tortured, right? We don't want that. But we fail to recognize that. And that's the great blind spot. That's the terrible blind spot. That leads to the fourth one, the last one, big one, which is the domination of the sacred feminine. And I think this is what really underlies everything is the basic fact that we human beings have what I think religious and philosophical system has recognized. The ancient Greeks called it Sophia, which is the sacred inner feminine dimension of consciousness that yearns to love and protect and nurture life. And this is the healthiest part of us as human beings. It's the beautiful part. A mother, I think women especially have this. A, A woman gives birth to a little baby and objectively this baby's nothing but a bunch of demands and you know and trouble and everything else but she just loves this baby she protects she nurtures and that's the foundation of a healthy baby right if that baby doesn't get that that poor baby is abandoned or just considered to be not worthy of trouble that baby's going to be very unhealthy physically and psychologically and if that's going throughout the entire society then the whole society is going to become very violent and very screwed up so that loving nurturing caring capacity that women have Men also have it. I mean, men can be very loving and nurturing also. That's Sophia. That's what the Greeks call the feminine wisdom. And, and I think every authentic spiritual tradition is encouraging us to nurture Sophia, be more kind. I used to teach college courses in comparative religion, and I love how all the world religions basically agree you know, on that basic point that to be you know, forgiving, to be kind, to be respectful to other humans, to, the, to God's creation and so forth. We see that in Buddhism, Taoism, Hinduism, Judaism, Islam, Christianity. You know, it's, it's basically a, a teaching. And in philosophies in general, in our own hearts, we know that's true. Whatever we sow, we're going to reap. Whatever we put out, we'll come back to be kind, you know to do it to others, what we'd like to have done to us. So that basic wisdom, unfortunately, is suppressed in our society. Every time we're forced as a little kid to participate in a meal, eating the flesh of a horribly abused animal, I'm suppressing so we don't care about cows. We don't care about pigs. We don't care about chickens. We don't care about fishes. We don't care about these other animals. And pretty soon we don't care about anyone outside of our tribe or out, you know, it's this kind of exclusivism. That's part of it. So that's a huge problem. And it leads to the final point I'll make. As an educator, also did quite a lot of research into the concept and the practice of intelligence. You know, what is intelligence? And because we always we want to have more intelligent. Children and more intelligent adults in a more intelligent society. You know, the definition of intelligence is the capacity to make connections, make relevant connections. If we can make connections well, we're, wow, we're really intelligent. <laughs> and every, every system has intelligence, right? You know, dogs have a certain intelligence that help them. Cows, pigs, birds, humans, societies have intelligence, planets have intelligence. You know, this is something that's, you know, our cells have an intelligence. So there's a tremendous amount of intelligence invested in us. Scientists say that every cell in our body is enormously complex and intelligent. That one cell, one cell in our body, and there are trillions of them, each cell is as complex as New York City, right? Or some, you know, I guess New York City is ruined, but say as London or whatever. Each cell, enormous intelligence. But the problem with animal agriculture is the basic teaching in animal agriculture is don't make the connection. Every meal I'm eating, it's don't make the connection. Don't think about what you're eating, where it came from. It's just a burger. You know, don't think about it. Just stay shallow. Don't look deeply. Don't feel deeply. Don't listen deeply. Don't care deeply. Just stay shallow and follow orders. Now, that's it. So that is a direct assault on our cognitive intelligence, on our emotional intelligence, on our ethical intelligence, and on our cultural intelligence. When everybody's getting that same ritual program of disconnectedness, So that, I think, explains a lot why, unfortunately, we have really tremendous capacities and intelligence as human beings. But it's so depleted by animal agriculture and by this ritual of just reducing beings that our intelligence is so reduced that we destroy rainforests, we destroy oceans, we really use most of our resources, unfortunately, to create a system where a tiny wealthy elite dominates everybody else and we go along with it. So it's time to awaken Sophia, and that's what I think the vegan movement is. Part, you know, partly is the awakening of Sophia within humanity, the awakening of this intelligence of kindness, the intelligence of compassion, the intelligence of caring to rise up in the world and care about the earth and of our children and our health and our environment and our societies and all these things. And then the cognitive intelligence to go with that. Instead of spending all our money. On more weapons and a more surveillance systems and a more security systems and a more domination system. <laughs> they use our intelligence to create sustainable projects to feed everyone, house, clothe, create, celebrate beauty and creativity. We could be doing that. We could easily be doing it. The problem is. Animal agriculture on the outer world, it is what is destroying the beauty. It's cutting down forests. It's destroying our health. It's causing war and conflict. But even more devastating, unfortunately, is what it does to the inner landscape of our awareness. It depopulates our ability to make connections. It reduces our intelligence and compassion, and we become like infants. Infants in the sense of we don't want to grow up. You know, We're drinking milk when we're adults. Like We still want to suckle at the breast of, an, of our mother somehow. And this infantilization, I'll just trust whatever the authorities tell me. I, just, I won't take responsibility for my health. I'll just take, do whatever the doctor, I'll take whatever drugs the doctor tells me to take. You know, I mean, this abandoning of our responsibility of caring for ourselves and our children and our earth plays right into the hands, again, of the elite that controls this system, because that's the other piece to this whole thing, which is that you know, when I talk about this, we say, well, gosh, this is a ridiculous, terrible system. Why don't we just stop it? Why do we, why, why do we put up with it? The fact is that that's, the system works very well for a tiny, wealthy elite that gets wealthy on war and disease and hunger and poverty and you know, all that and controls the media. So it's important to, for us as individuals to do our part, I think, to, uh, to educate ourselves and do what you're doing you know, to have, create a context. We can have these conversations where we can learn from each other and get to the root of the problem because otherwise we're just always hacking at the branches of the problems and, we, and we're not getting to the root. The root is animal agriculture, this massive killing of billions of animals every day by human beings, And we think it doesn't matter. And it, it matters because we're sowing the seeds of violence and then we reap them and, and we reduce our intelligence. Uh, and so we don't see it. And that's the big problem. So I'm really so happy and grateful to you for creating a forum where we can talk about these things in an open way. It's really wonderful. Thank you.
0: You're so welcome. Yeah, I think the compassion and the kindness piece is so important. If we could all just be a bit more compassionate and kind to ourselves, to the animals, to the environment, like even just like 10% more compassionate, it would make such a difference, you know, and speciesism really gets me like, who decided that dogs and dolphins and butterflies are better than any other animal? Like who decided that? Like that to me gets me so much. Like, why is it okay to eat a cow and not eat a dog? I know in some cultures they do do that, but like that just really pulls on my heartstrings so much because I love animals and I love the environment and I just don't get it. Like, I'm like, how, how did that happen?
1: Yeah. You know, it's so interesting because part of what I did along the way was I shaved my head and became a Zen Buddhist monk in Korea back in the 1980s. And I remember, you know, like nowadays, I sometimes if I'm talking to someone who's eating Sort of a standard Western diet, and I say, "Would you be able to give up eating hamburgers?" And, and they say, "No, I couldn't give up hamburgers. I love them. They're so delicious, you know." And roast beef and steak. Oh, I guess just, that's just—I live for that. It's so good, you know. And if I say to the person, "All right, well, could you give up eating dog meat?" Oh, dog meat. You no, I would never consider eating dog meat. That's that's repulsive. But I remember when I was in Korea talking to s- some Korean men and saying to them gosh you know could you give up eating dog meat and they said no no dog meat dog soup is so delicious and it's and it's so healthy it really it really gives you energy it's fantastic and i would and i say well could you give up eating hamburgers and roast beef oh hamburgers that's terrible what a barbaric thing to to kill a beautiful cow that's satanic that's terrible i would never do that <laughs> you know so i mean it's so obviously Just a product of our upbringing and our programming and our conditioning that we see certain beings as food and other beings as companions. And we're very much, you know, it's good though, in a sense. We're just following orders, right? Basically, that's one of the things I've realized is that the only reason anyone eats animal foods is only one reason. If you boil it down, there's only one reason anyone eats animal foods. And that one reason is this because I'm following orders. The only reason we don't think of this, we never would think of this on our own to. To like drink the milk of a, some other species and eat their eggs and eat their flesh, we would never think of it. It's just that we're compelled to do it and we have to do it and we're told all the, the narrative why. So we're just following orders. So that's one of the most powerful things because I think nobody wants to be following orders that are ridiculous. I mean they're just not in our best interest. They're destructive on every level to everyone. And including myself, so basically, just realized the only reason I'm eating, I mean, I that's what, what happened to me. I realized the only reason I was eating animal foods was because I was just well-meaning. My mother, she was well-meaning, but they're misinformed. It goes through the generations, you know. So well-meaning people told me I should do, so I was doing it. I would told my kids to do the same thing. So as we wake up out of that, then we're free. Oh, it's it's like liberation is so fantastic, and then we can help liberate others. But we can't change them, but we can plant seeds of liberation by explaining gosh, it's so great. I'm so thankful. I realized the only reason I was eating animal foods was because I was just following orders. I'm not doing it anymore. And it's great. Don't say anything else. Just that's enough. And people go later, they'll think about it and they'll go, hmm, that's the only reason I'm eating animal foods. <laughs> Maybe I'll try. Maybe I'll stop. You know, people have to come to this realization on their own. But I think we can help that process by just share, being loving, being respectful, and just speaking our own truth. Like Gandhi said, He used that word satyagraha, which means uh, the power of truth, to speak our truth and live our lives as best we can. And I think others will learn from that and will change. And that way we create positive revolution by just, in a loving way, sharing what we've discovered.
0: Is world peace really possible? Are there not varying degrees of peace and war in terms of polarity? Like peace does not exist without war, right?
1: You know, that's a great question. I think it's a, at this point, it's somewhat of a philosophical question, but I think it's also a very important question. My feeling and my conclusions at this point are that peace among human beings is possible in a sense of harmony and joy and solidarity and whatever words you want to use, friendship and so forth are possible. If we, and as we awaken out of the delusion of domination and violence towards animals, and begin to move toward compassion and kindness for them, which I think is not that big of a step. Most people, I mean, whenever they do you know, like polls, 99% of people say that anyone who harms an animal, you know, just out of cruelty should, should have consequences for that, right? Nobody wants to hurt animals. Animals are innocent. We, we hate hurting animals. So I think once we connect with our natural tendency for, because we all have empathy no one wants to see another suffer, another human being suffer. We don't. So we just, again, we're raised in a society. So if you want to have peace in a culture with eating meat, never, 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 never forget it. It'll never happen. We'll never have peace if we're going to want to eat animal foods, meat, dairy, or eggs in any quantity or fish or anything, because it's based on predation, objectification, violence. So, But we have the capacity now for every human being on this planet to eat plant-based diet. Even people that live sort of far away, they can eat, you know, like if you go up to Alaska or somewhere far in the north, people say, well, they're up there, they have to eat seals and this and that. But if you actually see what the people are eating, like I went up to Alaska, I mean, they're they're drinking Coca-Cola, they're eating French fries and hamburgers. I mean, all the food is shipped in anyway. So there's a lot of vegans up there. So, you know, we have systems in place. Everyone could be eating without killing animals, actually. So, but the point is, that when we move to that way, and I think that needs to be accompanied though by a spiritual maturity. There's a lot of vegans who just only change their diet and don't change anything else. <laughs> in a way. And they can still be racist and sexist and, and all, whatever, all kinds of things and fight and argue and criticize and blame and shame. And so just going vegan does not mean you're necessarily a better person. I mean, I think you're better at least for cows and pigs and chickens, but in the environment. But I think we have to realize that we've all been wounded and the only way we're gonna have a world of peace is if we go vegan, that's the absolutely necessary cause. But then on top of that, to do the inner work, to carry that through into our relationships with our husbands and wives and friends and neighbors treating not just non-human animals with kindness and respect, but human animals with kindness and respect. And they're the hardest ones because they say things that make us jealous or angry or something. So that's where the real work I think is. But I do feel that in a few generations, if we create more and more harmonious and kids are born into a world without violence, with much less violence, each generation could get better and better. And we could do birthing in ways that are without violence, food without violence, relationships without violence. Yeah, It's definitely possible. I think it's definitely possible. And just really, we, we need to go there or we're going to, I think with the technology we have, we're going to destroy everything.
0: Mm. On your website, you can train to become a certified World Peace Diet Facilitator. Can you take us through what that looks like and the sort of work that a World Peace Diet Facilitator would be doing? Because I feel like so many listeners right now who are looking for the next thing or their purpose, this could be an amazing opportunity for them to transform themselves and the planet.
1: Yeah, right. Thank you. I think it is a great opportunity for people who do it. We've had quite a few, I'd say, you know, quite a few hundred people have gone through it by now. In the past, we've done them live trainings, which is usually like a three-day, three or four-day training somewhere. But the online training is self-paced and anyone can do it from anywhere in the world. Just go online. And it's a series of audio lectures with videos, with supplemental readings that basically the idea is to read the World Peace Diet as a foundation and then go through facilitator training. And I just go in depth (laughs) through the whole thing. And then there are some writing. It's not too hard. I mean, there's two writing assignments to show your understanding of this. We also have a monthly, actually right now it's two monthly, the first Thursday and the third Thursday of every month. The third Thursday is the main one. It's the World Peace Diet circle where we have a live question and answer, but it's always recorded. People who are going through the training or who have already gone through the training can ask questions or we can have conversations about what's happening in the world and, and so forth. And then the first Thursday it's more of, a, I call it a world peace uh, satsang, which is more of just a chance to be together, do some meditation together and send out healing and love and peace and liberation into our world. And and have we can also have some discussion too, but it's not quite as in depth like the third Thursday. It's more of a spiritually oriented gathering. But the basic idea is that by getting a foundation in these ideas on a deep level, then people can go Forth into the world and do more things. And a lot of people are doing things where they actually start to make a living, you know, financially by being a vegan coach, for example, or vegan cooking classes or YouTube channels. Actually, quite a lot, I mean, videos or educate. We had like Kip Anderson, who is just one example. He went through our training and created some well known videos like Cowspiracy and What the Health. And other people have done quite a few other videos. And so you can create a whole Livelihood from this we've, we've had people create animal sanctuaries, a woman in Ireland for example, and some other people have you know, been created an animal sanctuary. We have somebody who went through our program and started teaching these principles to children in schools. There's actually quite a, a good possibility of creating a program where you go to schools and she ended up starting what's called the Ethical Choices program and now there's actually I think about over a hundred people have gone through the training. And they're teaching uh, children vegan principles in schools, in high schools and colleges throughout the United States and Canada. And I think they're just now uh, beginning to expand into Australia. So that's this one person who, you know, and again, she's making a whole livelihood doing this, but it's, she's reached, uh, you know, tens of thousands. I think it's over several hundred thousand students now with the vegan message. And it's, it's growing every year faster and faster. So there's like, many opportunities if we can begin to grasp the unique niche that we would like to address there are lots of people also now using ropey peaceci facilitator training to create online trainings themselves in mm-hmm. veganism in some aspect of veganism like the online vegan coaching or online vegan counseling spiritual counseling or weight loss management or relationships or i mean it's all kinds of different things you know the idea is to find what you are passionate about, and in, in the economy today, with everything that's been happening and lockdowns and so forth, it, we're all, I think, challenged uh, in some way to be creative and find ways we can contribute to the world that also help others and also can, in some sense, I'm not, not to say we're doing it for money, but can be monetized in some way so that we can um, survive and, and go forth. And so I think the good news is that if we're really looking at what the vegan movement is, it's a movement that's very important. It's growing all the time. There are more and more people who want to know how they can be healthy, how they can have good relationships with their friends and neighbors and be vegans. So there's really a big need for people who have wisdom and experience and have good communication skills and who are enthusiastic about this. And so there's lots of people who are needed as educators. Like I say, educators, coaches, creative people, art, music, video starting restaurants, these, all kinds of things that are really limited only, I think, by our creative potential. But this is a foundational kind of approach. People learn everything. I mean, learn not in depth in nutrition, but uh, in depth in the interconnectedness of all the different areas that are touched by the way we live and how we relate to our food. So on that level, I think we found that everyone who goes through it is, is very grateful because they found that it made it much easier for them to share these ideas with other people. Because that's the main thing. We want to be able to thrive as vegans and be healthy in this world, and then also to be effective in bringing this message to other people. And if we focus a lot on that. We have role-play exercises and the training and quite a lot of different things that help people be more effective. And that feels really important to just not try to change other people because as soon as I try to change and they fight back and pretty soon we're fighting with everybody all the time (laughs) trying to make them go vegan trying to get them to go vegan it's like it's so frustrating so you just forget that whole model and just live it ourselves and then just plant seeds with love and respect you're learning how to do that that's really I think one of the main focuses that people find very helpful
0: how long is the training
1: there's eight modules. So we suggest that it takes eight weeks. It's pretty not too hard to do it in eight weeks, so two months. But it's really up to each individual. Some people go through faster. We have people go through in like four or five, six weeks. they just like zooming and they just really want to get through. We have other people, it takes them like like a couple of years because they're going through all these things and, you know, but they eventually get through. So it's really totally self-paced and you can do it however you'd like to do it.
0: I love that. What's your definition of success and what do you attribute your success to?
1: Yeah, you know, that's a great question because I think this word success is so loaded in our society and we feel somehow that if we're not making a lot of money and we're not famous in some way, then we're not a success. You know, we're just, you know, one of the failures. And it's so, it's such a, really, it's like it turns us into a commodity. You know, what's our net worth you know, almost like we become like cows, or bought and sold by the pound. So I love, you know, I remember uh, growing up in Concord, Massachusetts. There was, a, I started reading when I was in college some of the essays by Emerson, and Emerson said that the definition of success, he said, is if we can just positively affect one other person in the world, then we've been a success. <laughs> I think I love that. You know, if you, you can just positively impact one person, <laughs> then you've been a success. Your life is a success. He said, not even, he said, even if you can help one little bird, he said, you've been a success, right? Doesn't have to be a human being, any being, if you can help one being, if you can save one little, you know, bee that's drowning in a pond, you know, you've you've been a success in your life. I mean, I think there's a lot of truth to that, but I, I would say the whole idea for me to be a success, it's to be part of the solution rather than just being part of the problem that is really what it is to me. I mean, I can be very successful in the outer world. like I can be like Jeff Bezos and be super rich and all that, but in some ways, I'm just part of the problem. I'm consuming more. I'm making more pollution. So I think being part of the solution to the problems, understanding the problems and, and doing what I can so that my life is an expression of reducing the my footprint as much as possible, increasing the amount of joy and Kindness and love and laughter and happiness that I'm helping others to feel, and and being as creative as possible, creating beauty. I think is a great thing. Like my wonderful wife Madeline is always creating paintings and knitting and and you know crafts and food and everything. Just to, you know videos. You know, should we have a food forest. We've become really quite a food forest where we lived in an RV for 17 years, just traveling and just doing you know 200 events every year of concerts and lectures and then we finally about 8 years ago we got a house and so then we just spent a lot of energy just creating beauty creating a space of love there we've planted about 80 fruit and nut trees and lots of you know berries and veggies and we just have this whole ecosystem with lots of like you say you know butterflies and bees and other you know animals that can come there and and we were even able to sell some of the food we grow and feed other people and So the whole idea is, you know, I think growing a beautiful, organic, veganic, you know, no bone meal, no blood meal, no manure, no animal inputs, just growing food for ourselves and more and more becoming self-reliant, self-sufficient. We all the energy that we use in our home comes from solar panels. We have a a battery so that we're always, you know, we don't have to depend on the the grid. I think I think just becoming self-sufficient for health, for information, for food for beauty, for energy, and and then creating, doing the best we can to create communities of sustainability, wherever we are, to try to help other people learn how to do that. Instead of relying on this gigantic grid of centralized power and control and profits and and toxicity, really, to decentralize, we need to decentralize and each one of us become a center of, of health and peace. You know, spend time every day meditating. I think that's really important. You know, meditate and just radiate love and compassion and joy and peace into the world. You know, just spend time every day radiating and helping to build a field of consciousness on this earth. That's being a success. Radiating and feeling a sense of compassion for all living beings, sending love to people when you just walk by them. You don't have to only send love to your best friends. I mean, send it to everybody, to you know, future generations, to ecosystems. I think you know this kind of thing. That that needs to be our new definition of success. It's being part of the solution and questioning the official narratives that come out of the mainstream media. Just question everything. I, I really want to encourage everyone. You know the mainstream media. I'm so grateful we disconnected from that like 50 years ago. <laughs> I haven't had a television really, literally in 50 years uh, since I was 17. And so I think. That's been a great blessing because I choose where I get information. I don't just take it in from, you know, turn on the TV and see what the news says. I'm very careful. And, uh, and connecting every day with nature, I think that's very important. That's another sign of success. I think if we can have a harmonious relationship with nature, take time to be connected to the earth, to the stars, to the sun, the moon, clouds, to animals, to other people, the quality of our relationships, I mean, that's huge. Are our relationships filled with love and harmony and joy? And are we, you know, helping others to feel worthy and and grateful? And are we grateful for them? We're just building webs of positive relationships. That's really success, I would say, in our world today and sharing and educating, you know, people uh, without trying to like, I know and you don't know, but just share what we've, you know, by our example.
0: I love that. So beautiful. Let's pretend you have a magic wand now and you could put one book in the school curriculum of every high school around the world. Now, besides your book, what book would you put in the curriculum for every high school student to read?
1: That's a really interesting question. Wow. I would say, yeah, I would, I would definitely put the world peace diet in as number one, but as number two, I would say, you know, one, Book. I, it's kind of a crazy book, but I think there are ideas in this book that really shake up people's concepts, which I like. So the book is Anastasia. It's called Anastasia. Oh, so good. You know that book?
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. It's magic.
1: Well, I think, you know, it's a, a woman, it's like a feminine spirituality that is so practical. It's practical. I love that. And it, and yet it's extremely evolved and inspiring. And it calls everything into question. Our history, our technology <laughs> that we're so proud of. You know, she, she really shows how we have within us already everything we need. And the earth can supply all of us. And we can have relationships with animals that are based on respect. I think that book is worth it, is really a great book.
0: We'll link to it in the show notes as well as the World Peace Diet, because guys both of those books need to be read. They're so incredible. But I'd love to hear about how your day looks now. Can you talk us through your morning routine, when you eat, what you eat, any rituals that you have in like, I know that no two days ever the same, but like a quote unquote typical day in your life and how your day flows. Can you kind of talk us through that? I love hearing this.
1: All right. So uh, I'll try not to go on too long here. But briefly, the morning is the main thing, right? I mean, it's the first couple of hours in the day. where, For us, Nell and I, we, we feel like this is our really especially sacred time. So the idea is to wake up. We don't get up super early. We get up like around 5, something like that, 5.30. And then to really make it a practice to be aware of the first thoughts and open up to any memories of the evening, the night's dreams, just to be aware of that. And then to give thanks. You know, just give thanks for another day of infinite potential, of possibilities to be a blessing and to learn and to grow and to contribute. And let that feeling of gratitude for this precious day just be established in every cell of my body and my mind. And then just Live in that throughout the day, but plan it right off the bat, first thing, and let's make it a practice to be grateful and appreciate the opportunity of, a, of this moment in this day. And so what it is is I always first thing water <laughs> and then clean my nose, sinuses, you know, inhaling water. And then I've trained myself to always take a bowel movement immediately, just do it. And we have a special thing, so I so I'm squatting. I think people should be squatting on the toilet. <laughs> You don't have to. I mean, not necessarily, but at least for me, it makes a big difference. Like, it makes it much easier because I think, you know, we have we've learned so many things of sitting above the ground. Everything is like we're weird. I, I had chronic back pain for a few years because I was sitting on chairs. So now I'm back how I used to be, which is sitting always on the floor. I just sit on the floor. I have I don't have we don't have no furniture in our house really. We just have low tables and chairs, and we have zafu. They're called zafus. It's a Japanese cushion. I just sit on the floor. I'm sitting on the floor right now. And um, so the idea is for me, that's, that really helps. So sitting on the floor and, and then getting up and down all the time, it's natural exercise. But anyway, so doing that. And, and then the next thing is meditation. So I'll do an hour or maybe a little more of just sitting in silence. I have my own room where I do that. Melvin does it in another room. And that's, in, that's sort of a key thing because that's, A time of just inner listening and silence, and the mind wants to think about what I'm going to do or what I wish I would have done or I wish they would have done, let it go and come back. Inner listening and the question of what am I? What is my true nature? So, just opening to a deeper and deeper questioning of beyond the physical body and the physical thing, you know, what is it? The eternal consciousness to connect with that dimension. So, that's an hour of that. And then there's uh, followed by yoga. I do. Something called the five rites I do with the five Tibetan rites, which is, I think it's very helpful for, for longevity and strength. And then after that, I write in a journal. I think I found that journaling is a good thing. So I write in a journal and then I read a, a sacred text of some kind. Right now I'm reading the Dhammapada, which is an ancient Buddhist text, which I'm going over and over it. you know, It's just very simple, but it's profound, but just something inspirational. And then I usually do a little bit of quick checking, is anything pressing on the internet. And then I go outside and then do the next program, which is typically when we're at home, I'll, I'll go down to the lake, which is a short bike ride, maybe two minutes, and I'll take a swim. And that's an experience. In the summer, it's warm. In the winter, it's ice cold. And take a shower. There's an outside shower at the beach. And then come back and then um, do some more exercises. There's, uh, I have a whole routine. I do a, a Tai Chi routine. I do 500 jump ropes with a weighted jump rope, but that's really good cardio. <laughs> and um, I do some other exercises, push-ups, and other pull-ups and things. So that's kind of exercise more, and then and then that's basically it. So that's that's the morning program, and then I'll go more into the computer, what I have to do for the day in the morning, and then usually around 10:30 or so, Madeline makes a green smoothie. So that's our our first meal of the day. We have a YouTube channel and so if you go to Will Tuttle on YouTube, you can see the green smoothie and it's a ton of greens from the garden. We have all these herbs. Madeline grabs a whole handful of herbs, all kinds of stuff, you know, kale and mint and herbs and all and things, maybe other things from the garden, fruits, apples, berries, whatever. And then some it's a whole conglomeration of things, celery and and some vegetables and greens. And so we drink that and that that's basically our meal for the day. And then we'll carry on and do some more things, whatever the work is, in the office. And then um, usually we'll have a little snack around maybe one, which is maybe just some nuts and olives and maybe a little... Madeline makes homemade bread, kind of Swiss bread. So we maybe have a slice of that, just a kind of a very light thing. And then we, we spend usually a half hour sunning on the deck, a really sunny deck. And it's private, so we don't wear any clothes. We just do a nice sun bath and maybe a little meditation and listening. He likes taking a short power nap for like 10 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes, which I think actually is a good idea. I do it a little bit too. And then we have the afternoon program, which is outside, (laughs) just out working in the garden, building, moving rocks. I'm, I'm building decks. I'm just working, physical work in the garden. And then we take an outside shower. We have not taken a shower Inside the house in like eight years, or, something, or maybe not, maybe maybe six years. We have this outside shower. So and then and then we have our, our second meal, which is the dinner, and that's usually vegetables and and some kind of starch, potatoes or spaghetti or pasta, something really plenty of uh, energy. Then we have our evening program, which is whatever we want we want to do. Oh, one thing we do in the morning, I forgot to mention. Every morning is I after meditation, I go right to the piano and I play the piano. I play, and then Madeline. And then sometimes, and I write down new music that comes, so I'm composing and playing. And then after about uh, half an hour or 20 minutes, Madeline comes out, and she joins me on the silver flute, and we play music together, and then we have our morning sort of loving each other time, kind of just connecting in a loving way before I uh, go out for my run and everything. And then in the evening, we have, again, it's kind of an evening program. We maybe do, maybe watch a movie, maybe do some emails. And then we always close the day with some more spiritual reading together. We read the whole Anastasia series together. You know, I read it to her out loud (laughs) as an example. And then, uh, yeah, then we go to bed. That's kind of how a typical day
0: is. So beautiful. I love that. That's so gorgeous. Just and so inspiring, really inspiring. Now I've got three rapid fire questions for you. Are you ready?
1: Oh, okay. All right.
0: (laughs) Okay. What's one thing that we can do today for our health? Just one change that we can start today.
1: Well, I think, gosh, I mean, everybody's in a different place, but I think eating organic, I mean, like 100% organic, that nowadays is critical because glyphosate has kind of taken over the world and with gmos and genetically modified and everything and even non-gmo stuff so glyphosate is a broad spectrum antibiotic it's wiping out our microbiome it's so plant-based and organic (laughs) those key things and and mostly in foods with lots of life force you know not processed whole foods whole food organic vegan foods number one that's it and then i guess the other thing would be just gratitude cultivating gratitude and sense of purpose
0: i love that two beautiful tips Okay, what is one thing that we can do today for more wealth in our life? So, more abundance in all areas of our life.
1: Give. You know, that's the key. I mean, you know, if I don't have any money at all, then just give, give the last penny I have to somebody who needs it more than I do. <laughs> I think it always comes back. You can't outgive the universe. So, if we can be generous, however we think, I mean, being generous to those in need, generous to the source of our um, spiritual sustenance, I think is really helpful to give to those we think are really. Doing the best work, the most important work in the world, and it's a very personal thing. But being generous—not just with money, but with our time, with our our abilities—you uh, know, with our um, kindness, whatever we can do—that's guaranteed. We will feel abundant, and when we have that feeling of abundance, you can't stop it. You'll you'll have whatever you need.
0: Absolutely. I love that. And what's one of the most important things that we can do for more love in our life? Kind of what you've already said, but is there anything else?
1: <laughs> be loving. <laughs>
0: be loving. Yeah,
1: beautiful. I think taking uh, responsibility for the quality of our relationships and taking responsibility for the quality of our own consciousness, not thinking, well, I would be happier if they were different. You know, I would be loving, if they were more loving, you know, we have, I, that's a very deep program. Like, you know, I'll give as much as you do, but not more. And if you don't give, then I, then I won't, that whole thing. its I think just trying to express as much as we can, a loving attitude toward those that are close to us. And also that's what veganism, veganism, everything we're talking about here, it's love. You know, veganism is love. That's what it is. It's loving and caring for animals and ecosystems and hungry people and those that nobody cares about and those that are maybe a problem for us like i say you know if we don't feel like we're being loved then when we do the dishes and we hang up the dish towel if we hang up the dish towel with love we will feel loved. we don't have to worry we can be all alone on a desert island but we can hang up the dish towel with love, <laughs> and we love. there's a lot of truth to that really
0: yeah definitely move through our day with love it's it's Practice that will just change your whole life. So I love that. This has been so inspiring. You've really inspired me to be more loving, to be more compassionate, to be more generous to everyone, to the animals, to nature, to give more. And I want to thank you for that. But is there anything else that you want to share, any last parting words of wisdom, or anything that you wanted to talk about that I haven't? been able to ask you.
1: That's a beautiful way to end. And I think all in all, I feel pretty complete here. The World Peace Diet as an audiobook is 13 and a half hours long. So I can talk on and on here about more and more details and how the history of all this, the anthropology and the sociology and all the different nutritional components uh, and economic and governmental and relationship I mean it's vastly complex and we can really talk on and on but I think I mean I really appreciate your questions and I'm grateful to the people who are listening because I think at the end of the day it's really about the quality of our relationships to those we see and those we don't see and to realize essentially that we're all interconnected and that our our welfare is interconnected the more we bless others the more we'll be blessed the more we liberate others the more we'll be liberated And to, with that understanding, to just question all the programming we see in the media and all the program that we're coming from our own media (laughs) inside of ourselves and out of that to connect with our intuition. I think that's maybe my final point. We all have an inner wisdom that's right here and it's always shining in our hearts. And that's why I think meditation is so important. Moving through the day, like you say, in a loving way, listening, inner listening, not rushing, jumping to conclusions, but taking a few extra minutes or moments to ponder and look more deeply and to connect with the beings that have been rendered invisible. And so many beings have lost value. And if we can respect all beings and be a force for that, I think we'll find coming into our life, into our consciousness, a sense of grace, a sense of benevolence, a sense of joy that doesn't need any reason in the outer world. Just being. Is a cause for celebration and joy. We are in a world now where we're, we're entering into rapids of massive change, of disruption of a lot of our institutions. So it's more important than ever that we stay connected to the eternal dimension of consciousness. That what we are is like the infinite sky that is self luminous and radiant and eternal. And the clouds that come and go uh, of our feelings and of the news and the problems they cannot ultimately harm us. So if we stay rooted in that awareness, then we can be a force of love and kindness. Even when people around us may be going crazy with fear, we don't have to be afraid. We can realize that what we are is ultimately undamageable. And so the best thing we can do is to be kind and loving because there are many uh, incarnations for this consciousness. And so this consciousness, we're here to learn and contribute and grow And we're always given opportunities to do that. That's the real challenge and the opportunity, but to have that big picture as much as possible.
0: I love that. So beautiful. I want to thank you so much for being here and sharing with us today. You help so many people. You serve so many people with your books, your program, your talks, everything. I want to know what I personally and the listeners can do to give back and serve you today.
1: You know, just go forth and multiply the message <laughs> into the world, in your daily lives, and feel free to stay in touch with us at worldpeacediet.com is, you know, you can write an email. I'm happy to stay in touch with folks, and, and we're in this together. I really feel that at a deep level, and the more uh, we help each other, the more we help ourselves, the more we help ourselves get clarity, the more we help everybody else. That's how it all works.
0: Absolutely. Will, this has been so amazing. Thank you so much for everything that you do and everything that you shared today. It's been so beautiful. So please stay in touch and thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you. Wonderful work you're doing. Bless you and thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Don't forget to head to Comparisonitis.com to get your copy of my latest book and all the free goodies that go with it. I cannot wait for you to read it and to hear what you think. What a beautiful man and a beautiful conversation. I hope you guys got a lot out of today's episode. And if you did, please subscribe and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts because that means that we can inspire and educate even more people together. And it also means that you could potentially be the review of the week for next week, which is pretty awesome. And speaking of review of the week, I want to read this week's review and it's a five-star review from Leah Allison and it's titled Authentic and Refreshing. And she says, in a world full of chaos, it's nice to find the calm. That's exactly how I feel listening to your podcast, Melissa. Each episode is informative and lighthearted and I always take something away from it. Thank you for being a light and leading the way. I'm truly grateful to hear you and those you interview speak your truth. All my love, Leah. Thank you so much, Leah, for that beautiful review. I am so grateful. And as a little thank you, I want to gift you one of my favorite products, and that is some goodies from Blue Blocks. So all you have to do is email hello at with your address, and we'll send you over those goodies as a little thank you. And don't forget to come and follow me on Instagram at melissarambrosini and tell me your top key takeaways from this episode. I absolutely love reading what you get from each show, so please come and share them with me. And don't forget to check out the show notes, MelissaRambrosini.com forward slash 403 for everything that Dr. Will and I mention in the show today. And before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here, for wanting to be the best, the healthiest, and the happiest version of yourself, and for showing up today for you. You rock. Now, if there's someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this episode,